Today at Reader's Corner, Stuart Reed, author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. In 1960, the Congo was set free from Belgium, one of 17 countries to gain independence from ruling European powers. It was supposed to be a moment of great optimism, a cause for jubilation, but chaos was soon to follow in the form of a mutiny, a coup, and a bevy of foreign interference. Within a year, everything would unravel. In his new book, The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination, Stuart Reed tells the sordid story of the U.S.-sanctioned plot to assassinate the democratically elected leader of the newly independent Congo, charismatic nationalist Patrice Lumumba. The results are a work of history that often reads like a Cold War spy thriller. Stuart Reed is an executive editor of Foreign Affairs. He has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and many other publications. Stuart Reed, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. Well, Stuart, uh, I really summed it up there when I said it reads like a Cold War spy thriller because when I'm not reading books for Reader's Corner, I'm reading Cold War spy thrillers. And I'm reading yours thinking, I learned in the subtitle of your book what happens. It's called a Cold War assassination. Uh, And yet, page by page, just unfolds as as a mystery what's going to happen next. So uh, I want our readers and listeners to know that this is uh, not just a great work of nonfiction, but one could argue it is that uh, thriller-type approach that you find in fiction. So let's begin uh, with the scramble for Africa, it's been called. Uh, European nations in the 19th and 20th century divvied up the continent, Tell us about the composition of the region we now call the Congo, where before it was carved up for colonial interest, uh, it looked quite differently than, as I said, what we call the Congo. Right. So before the 1880s, the area we now call the Congo contained and still contains many different ethnic groups and peoples. Um, It's a large, vast region, the Congo River Basin, meaning all the land that drains into the the mighty Congo River. Um, And then in the 1880s, there was Belgian colonial exploration and, and the Belgians took over. And what was interesting was that unlike other European colonies, the Belgian Congo or the Congo Free State, as it was known at the time, was not run by the government of the European country. It was, in fact, the personal colony of the king of the Belgians, King Leopold II. So it was a personalistic project by a Belgian king. Um, and in fact, he never during his entire lifetime would set foot in the in the colony that he supposedly ran. And eventually that colony of his became the colony of Belgium. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. There was um, sort of an early international human rights scandal where the uh, the Congo Free State, as it was called, um, you know, not a particularly free pa- place, of course, uh, you know, extracted rubber, forced um, slave laborers to collect rubber and chopped off hands of those who didn't, you know, come up with the right amount. So there was a sort of international outrage that ended with the colony being transferred from the king to the Belgian government, where it was then run. Um, 
you know, in many ways, similarly to the way other European powers ran their colonies in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I, and I want to get to that in a moment, but beforehand, you mentioned rubber, which was uh, the primary product of the Congo for a long time. But today, when we think about the Congo, we think about a very poor nation uh, over which lies a lot of earth that is just loaded with certain minerals that we need today for our digital age. Could you just share with our listeners what, what those minerals are uh, that are so important that countries not just like Russia originally – in fact, I'm not so sure uh, Russia even understood what was going on underground back then. But China today does and the U.S. does. Uh, what's there? There's a lot of copper in Congo today, a lot of diamonds. Um, but really what it's gained a lot of attention for is cobalt. It's the yes. world's leading producer of cobalt, which is – in lithium iron batteries and therefore you know crucial for powering the green energy transition so as you mentioned there are a lot of uh chinese companies active in congo i mean the great irony of of congo throughout its history has been that it's an extremely rich place in terms of natural resources but an incredibly poor place in terms of what the population actually receives it's mm -hmm. one of the poorest countries in the world 70 percent of the population today lives on less than a dollar 15 per day. Mm -hmm. There have been a number of uh, books written about uh, King Leopold II uh, and and his reign and rule in the Congo. Maybe you can just give us a a short summary of how how that worked out. Uh, I mean literally what was life like for the Congolese during the years of of King Leopold. I know the Belgians like to impress people from the outside by telling outsiders and the Congolese that, well, we're, we're preventing slavery. We're, we're stepping in here and no longer will, will Congolese be exported to other countries as slaves. But in a sense, it was almost a different kind of slavery, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the real goal was resource extraction and control. And so they, King Leopold came up with a, um, a veneer for this, which, as you said, was allegedly to you know, rescue the Congolese from Arab slave traders. In fact, um, as you mentioned, they did not turn it into a particularly nice place at all. So you had forced labor to collect rubber. Um, you had forced conscription. You had a lot of just sort of everyday atrocities in a way where people would shoot villagers for sport even. Um, and the great book here on this is King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hoekskild. Yes. So it was a, you know, it goes down in the, the pantheon of human atrocities as one of, um, one of the deadliest and cruelest eras. Um, and in fact, calculating how many millions of people died, literally millions is, you know, is basically impossible. So tell us who Patrice Lumumba was and how does his life and career fit into this tale of colonization, decolonization, and independence. Right. So eventually in the late 1950s, Belgium realized that it would have to give up its colony. The Algerians were fighting a war against their French colonial masters in Algeria, and the Belgians didn't want anything similar to this. Um, you know, the winds of change were coming to Africa. No longer could a European power thousands of miles away hold on to a colony against the will of the people there. So, so Belgium very quickly and with extremely little preparation sort of uh, divested itself of its colony. 
Patrice Lumumba was the country's first prime minister. He had risen from humble circumstances. He was a self-taught man, an autodidact. He worked for the colonial administration as a postal clerk. He had served time in jail, um, first for embezzling money from the post office, and then another time for a more political reason for allegedly inciting a riot when he gave a political speech. And in elections in the spring of 1960, he won the most votes in, in parliamentary elections. And then in June 1960, the Congo became an independent nation, no longer under Belgian rule. And Patrice Lumumba was the country's first prime minister. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Stuart Reed, author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. Now, how best to describe at this particular point in time uh, his relationship to Russia, which has much to do with, of course, the Cold War at the time. America was viewing everyone as either for or against the United States, and Russia was the chief adversary. And I'm again, your book goes into quite a bit of detail on a number of American officials who come away with an impression that Lumumba was a communist, that he was, uh, you know, uh, pink at least when it comes to how he dealt with uh, the Russians. Uh, share with us your take on that. Yeah. So the Americans fundamentally misjudged Lumumba, I think. As you said, this is the Cold War. There was this sense in Washington that you were either with us or against us, that the entire world could be divided into places that were communist or non-communist or about to go in either direction. And Lumumba, they personally judged as erratic, unreliable, and therefore potentially useful for Soviet purposes or even maybe pro-communist. Now, it turns out the Russians were not particularly interested in Congo. This was 1960. They were not at the peak of their power yet. Congo was a faraway place. They could score some political propaganda points by you know, pointing out the horrible things the Belgians had done. But this was not a country that Moscow thought it could really influence. And Lumumba was not a leader whom they thought they could reliably control whatsoever. And in fact, when you look at Lumumba's words and actions, what I what came to surprise me was how, how pro-American he is in a way. Um, he talked about sending Congolese youths to American schools, not Soviet schools. He even at one point called on U.S. troops to intervene in Congo and you know rescue his country, which is hardly the words of a man on the Soviet side. But in the Cold War context and in the chaos of the crisis that was engulfing the Congo at the time, American officials didn't accurately judge him and mistakenly categorized him, in my view, as pro-Soviet or potentially pro-Soviet. In fact, he wanted his country to be neutral in the Cold War. He wanted help from anybody. He asked the Americans for help. They didn't give it. So he asked the Soviets for help. And that right there seems to be the, the reason why the U.S. would conclude that he was going to lean toward Russia. He was desperate for any kind of intervention that would deal with these uprisings and insurrections uh, in these local provinces. And uh, as you say, uh, look what happens. I, I have to insert here, uh, I, I read a number of uh, comments in your book about Lumumba on the campaign trail, so to speak. I read some of his own words, which you've inserted in your book. And there really is something about Lumumba 
that reminded me, and only only in terms of his speaking ability. I don't want to take this this uh, comparison very far, but I thought of Martin Luther King and and the impact he had on America during the Civil Rights Movement. And Lumumba had all those incredible powers of uh, speech that uh, that we respect so much here. Um, he was doing that for the Congolese, wasn't he? Not? Yeah, I mean, one thing that both Lumumba's supporters and his harshest critics agreed on was that he was incredibly charismatic. That That is a sort of, everyone who met him thought of that about him, even if they hated him. Um, the U.S. ambassador to Congo, a man named Claire Timberlake, who was no fan of Lumumba, liked to say that if Lumumba walked into a restaurant as a waiter with a tray on his head, he would somehow have walked out as prime minister because he was so convincing and so clever. On the campaign trail, Lumumba really inspired a lot of hope in Congolese. Many of them were skeptical, rightly as it would turn out, that the Belgians would really give up power and leave and that the Congolese would be in charge now. And after hearing Lumumba speak, he convinced them. Um, he was also a really effective political organizer. I think that's important to point out. He could run an operation like no other, get pamphlets printed, organize speeches, enroll voters, that sort of thing. So what really distinguished him and what made him ultimately become prime minister was one, his his charisma, as we've talked about, and two, his sort of grassroots political organizational skill. Now, what's interesting about Lumumba and the fact that today we are still focused on his life and career is that he held office for no more than two and a half months. And at this time, there were considerable issues regarding the administration of the Congo, how well the new Congolese could rule. And I'd like you to comment on what the Belgians left behind. First of all, there was white flight. So many of the people who were not just running the country, but serving in healthcare, serving in education, uh, blew out of there. Um, what, what impact does that have on a young nation trying to get its feet under it uh, for governance? Lumumba had probably about four or five days of normalcy before everything completely imploded in Congo. So independence is June 30th, 1960. On July 5th, the army mutinies. So the, the officer corps was all white Belgians. This was a sort of odd holdover from colonialism. And they very quickly, the, the rank and file, the black Congolese rank and file mutiny against their white officers. So they're gangs of soldiers roaming the streets. Um, the white population, as you mentioned, flees en masse. So all the experts and everything from, you know, air traffic controllers to doctors to radio operators to teachers, they leave the country. And so there's more chaos there. Then one and then two provinces secede, announce they're leaving Congo and, and the country's, you know, literally now fractured. Belgian troops intervene without Congolese permission. So the Belgian military paratroopers were landing across the country ostensibly to rescue Belgian civilians, but to the Congolese, it looked like a recolonization. And so it's hard to imagine a greater crisis that could afflict a new country. And so Lumumba is desperate and he calls on the United Nations for help. And the UN sends in a peacekeeping operation that was the first of its kind, really. Before that, the UN had 
sent observers to monitor truces and ceasefires, but this was the first time it was now responsible for restoring order to an entire country. So there's this brief moment in, in July 1960 and for the months afterward where Congo was front page news of the New York Times every day. It was the Cold War crisis of the moment. And tell us just specifically, um, you have a comment in your book from Barack Obama, but interestingly enough, it's not the Barack Obama we all know about as the former president, but his father. And first of all, I think it's very interesting that you found the quote or somebody found the quote. Uh, but I wonder if you could put that in the context of how the Congolese were perceiving Belgian rule during this period. Yeah. So I was not the, the first to discover this, but um, there was an editorial in the Honolulu Star Bulletin in 1960. This is shortly before independence. And uh, someone, the editorial had talked about how efficiently and sympathetically the Belgians had administered their colony. So this is, uh, this letter was written right after independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a fairly pro-Belgian editorial. And so a student studying in Hawaii at the time, who's from Kenya, writes in and says to the newspaper, essentially, you have this completely wrong. Uh, I've seen how racist and terrible the Belgian administration in the Congo was, and it signed Barack H. Obama. And so that was President Obama's father, who was then a Kenyan student studying abroad in Hawaii, writing a letter to the editor um, a year before he would have his, his famous son. And you mentioned the United Nations and the critical role they play in this period. Tell us about Dag Hammarskjöld, who uh, was for eight years, I believe, the Secretary General of the UN. Uh, what's the take on him in regard to this crisis the Congo is facing? So Hammarskjöld was uh, a remarkable Secretary General in that he really turned the position into something meaningful. Before him, it was this, it was a fairly powerless role. And when he took charge in 1953 and in the years afterwards, he really transformed the position of secretary general into this independent diplomatic actor. So when the Congo fell into crisis, Lumumba reaches out to the UN for help and says, you know, sends a desperate telegram asking for some sort of military intervention. He didn't even really know um, what form it would take. And Hammarskjöld has a choice. Does he rise to the occasion or not. And he decides quite bravely, although it would be his undoing, to to say yes. And the UN, in record time, organizes this massive peacekeeping operation. Something like 15,000 peacekeepers were in Congo within a matter of weeks. And they were from different nations, mostly African nations, Morocco, Guinea, Ghana. But there were also, the Americans were helping with the airlift, the Soviets and the British were as well. And it was this fascinating and ambitious international mission, a sort of hopeful idea that it represented that we could set aside all these Cold War differences and all agree that we want to restore order to the Congo and let the Congolese people have their independence and um, enjoy a you know prosperous future. So Dag Hammarskjöld was at the forefront of that effort. Unfortunately, the UN peacekeeping mission, it, it didn't really work, um, especially at first. And, and Lumumba was endlessly frustrated with this. And Hammarskjöld basically gave up on Lumumba, did he not? Yeah. I mean, they had a a break, basically, yeah. and, and were not on speaking terms. And their styles could 
could not have been further apart. Hammarskjöld was diplomatic, polite, formal, legalistic. Lumumba was brash, off the cuff, mercurial, excitable, and and they their styles clashed completely, and they both lost confidence in each other. You're listening to Stuart Reed. He's the author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. So let's get to the subtitle of your book, uh, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. As far as the secret history of the CIA is concerned, the key player there is a guy named Larry Devlin. Uh, Tell us what role he plays uh, in, in this plot. So Larry Devlin was the CIA station chief in Congo at the time. Um, He was 37, 38 years old and ended up having an enormous influence and played a a massive role in events. So in August 1960, there's a key meeting at the White House. This is in the Eisenhower administration. And the meeting is talking about Lumumba's, uh, everyone's talking about Lumumba's latest antics and how he's unreliable and he's threatening to kick out the UN. And he's said, uh, he's made various appeals to the Soviet Union. And at that point, Eisenhower says something. We don't know the exact words. They're lost to history, but he says something to the effect that the CIA needs to get rid of Lumumba. Will no one rid me of this troublesome prime minister is, is how I think of it. And. We know that because the note taker at the meeting would later reveal this to the church committee in 1975. And also we know that because of what happened next. And so Alan Dulles is the head of the CIA at the time, the director. And after Eisenhower makes this remark, Dulles sets in motion a plan to assassinate Lumumba, which is, um, you know, you kindly compared my book to a Cold War spy thriller. But I think this is the type <laughs> of thing that if you put it in fiction, Someone might think it doesn't sound that believable. But what the CIA did was they sent a vial of poison to Congo that Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, was supposed to place into Lumumba's food or toothpaste. Um, and so this is a really, you know, far-fetched scheme. Um, it was the first time the U.S. government had tried to assassinate the leader of a foreign country. And it spoke to just how threatening Washington viewed Lumumba at that moment. Yeah, that was quite uh, quite the shocker. I mean, I have to admit that as I'm reading about this uh, poisoning attempt by the CIA, I couldn't help but think of how appalled we all were when uh, Putin was uh, poisoning Russian dissidents in London. And I thought, wow, obviously the Russians weren't the first ones to figure out this kind of behavior. Uh, yeah, and I mean poisoning and pick particular has a long history from the perspective of the the state trying to do the assassinating. It's it's quite appealing because it, it's sort of leave no trace killing. Um, the person dies, it, it may never even become known that they died because of a poison. So there were a lot of advantages. It's a small package that can be, you know, easily smuggled into a country. So um, there were there were reasons to pick that if you were trying to kill a foreign leader. There's one other uh, actor in in your book that uh, I found very interesting, Ralph Bunch, uh, the African-American who was assigned by Dag Hammarskjöld to deal with the Congo and Lumumba. Uh, Just give us a a brief account of of his role. And, and of course, he, like so many, uh, comes out uh, not exactly in favor of Lumumba. Yeah, so Ralph Bunch is 
is an American who, who deserves to be far more well known than he is. And and for listeners who aren't familiar, he he was an American diplomat. He had actually been in the OSS, which is the predecessor to the CIA during World War II. Um, he rose from very humble circumstances to graduate at the top of his class at UCLA, get a PhD from Harvard, and then he worked at, as a diplomat for the State Department for the conference that created the UN in San Francisco in 1946. Um, Bunch ends up joining the United Nations, becoming the highest ranking American within the organization and a trusted deputy to Dog Hammarskjöld. And Hammarskjöld sent Bunch to Congo in advance of independence as really as just the UN's representative at the independence ceremonies. But it quickly turned out that the UN was being called on to to help the country. And so Bunch was in charge of the UN mission there. And in that role, he met with Lumumba and negotiated with him constantly about, you know, how the UN operation would work, where the peacekeepers would go, et cetera. And they were like oil and water. They never got along. And Bunch, you know, wrote privately to his wife. He called Lumumba, quote, schizophrenic. Um, in his journal, he referred to him as a, quote, Congolese ogre. So the, the depths of the hatred and disgust that Bunch held for Lumumba really can't be overstated. And the feeling was mutual. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two never got along. And Bunch left Congo in frustration after he was no longer able to even meet with Lumumba. Well, there's no doubt that he sacrificed uh, his own health uh, for his efforts in attempting to piece things together in the Congo. Ralph Bunch should, as you say, not be forgotten in American history. Uh, Joseph Mobutu, who, who is the guy who basically ends up taking over for Lumumba, um, first of all, who, who was he in the early days and what role does he play in Lumumba's life and assassination? So most people who are familiar with Mobutu know him as the you know, dictator of Congo who wore a leopard skin hat and ruled the country in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But in my book, in 1960, he's he's a much different man. So he was Lumumba's protege, his secretary of sorts, the junior partner in the relationship. He would run errands for Lumumba um, and support him in his various political endeavors. Uh, after the mutiny, Lumumba makes Mobutu basically in charge of the army, and he did that because Mobutu had served six or seven years in the military and so knew how the military worked and could be, so Lumumba thought, a loyal person to implement Lumumba's will in the army. Um, what ends up happening is, and as you can sense, this is something of a theme with Lumumba. Lumumba and Mobutu have a rupture. They no longer see things the same way, no longer agree on how to deal with the crisis. And Mobutu long story short, with with help from the CIA, takes power in a coup d'etat and steps in and puts Lumumba under house arrest and eventually um, plays a hand in his death. And that really is a a tough part of your your book. Uh, It wasn't just his death that that got to me. It was the details. It was the torture. Uh, It was the dismemberment. I did. I don't quite understand why there was such incredible violence, and it causes me to ask the question: Does Lumumba? He wasn't the perfect uh, prime minister for sure, but 
that he deserved the extent to which he was tortured and even dismembered as far as his family was concerned, especially. Yeah, I mean, of course, no one deserves anything like that, but but a bit about how it came to pass. So Lumumba is overthrown as prime minister, Mobutu takes charge in a coup, and he's under house arrest, Lumumba is, but then he escapes, which was a very fateful decision. He escapes house arrest and is then caught. And so this time, Mobutu's determined, okay, we need to firmly control him, so they throw him in jail. And and now we're talking, this is um, December 1960, going into January 1961. And there's a clock ticking. And that clock is the end of the Eisenhower administration and the beginning of the Kennedy administration. And so Mobutu, along with Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, is worried that the new Kennedy administration might arrange some sort of political compromise that would result in Lumumba being set free and potentially even returning to power as prime minister. He was extremely popular. Even the soldiers guarding him, there was a mutiny because some of the soldiers were calling for his release. So he, again, he had this sort of rare and impressive ability to win over people through his speech, but he was also genuinely um, politically popular. And this was terrifying to the Americans, to Mobutu. And so there was a sense that he had to be gotten rid of, that he had to be dealt with, and sadly, that he had to be physically eliminated. Mm-hmm. And so in January 1961, Mobutu, after informing Larry Devlin about what he's about to do, sends Lumumba to his death in the breakaway province of Katanga. Um, Lumumba's thrown on a plane, he's tortured the entire ride there, and not that many hours after landing, he's shot dead in a remote clearing. And that is a fitting place for us to end our discussion this week. I want our listeners to stay tuned because we haven't begun to finish this story, and we're going to do that next week as we discuss Lumumba's execution and its aftermath in Congolese history uh, right down to present day. Stuart Reed, thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner, and we look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you for having me. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.